chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. You know, people are a competitive lot. There seems to be an innate drive within us that pushes us to compete. Certainly, this is true in sports. The sport or the game, it's designed as a competition in which each team seeks to uh, win the contest. Uh, There would be no sports if there was no competition. Uh, Nor would there be such... uh, a purpose to games like uh, a Monopoly and, and Risk or Chess or Canaster or the computer games they play now, uh, Fortnite or Halo. And, uh, and we all enjoy the challenge. I remember one time, uh, Helen and I, we, we, we bought this game. And it was advertised as non-competitive game. Okay, and uh, uh, I don't remember exactly what the name of it was, but you... You know, you took your dice and you moved your marker and you landed on something and you had to pick a card and it asked you a, a, a question about yourself. And there was no winning or losing and you just went around talking about yourself. And it was probably a great game if you were studying to become a psychologist, but I found it just totally boring. Uh, no competition. <clears throat> but beyond the games, uh, there's lots of competition in the real world also. Uh, people compete for the better job, uh, the, the, the best girl, the, the number one chair in the orchestra, the, one of the few seats in medical school. And even the Apostle Paul often uses uh, illustrations uh, enlisting competitive sports or images. As in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do, you know, do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to gain a crown that will not last, but we do it to gain a crown that will last forever. So the question becomes, is competition good or bad? And, uh, of course, the answer is yes and no. Much of it has to do with one's motives. Obviously, if we, we cheat to tip the scales or use unethical practices uh, to favor us and just win the game or to take no regard for the welfare of others in our pursuit, uh, that's a bad thing. Uh, If our actions are motivated by jealousy and anger or selfishness, those emotions are bad. But on the other hand, competition can motivate us 
to do our very, very best, to work our hardest, and to push ourselves beyond our previous limits. If it involves a team, it often can build solid camaraderie and uh, deepen relationships amongst teammates. In our passage today, Paul deals with some unusual competition. And he makes a very important point. But he starts by presenting a very surprising perspective on his being under house arrest. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You've all heard the expression in life, uh, if, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That's a bit of what Paul has done in this situation. Now, he could easily be whining about his arrest and being chained every day to a, a Roman soldier, even though it was just house arrest, it wasn't a dark dungeon. He could have vented about having his plans disrupted, uh, his plan to visit Spain. He could have groaned with anxiety, wondering uh, if the verdict at his trial would mean his death. There was a good deal that Paul could have complained about, but he didn't. And that's because he had a different perspective on his circumstances. He viewed his arrest as an opportunity. Paul had a desire to visit Rome the capital of the empire. In writing earlier to the Romans, he states, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Well, Paul made it to Rome. But it was not the way that he anticipated he would make it to Rome. You know, so often, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But so very often, it's not the plan that we think he should have. Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, Many other plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So Paul arrived in Rome, but he arrived as a prisoner. But there was a silver lining to those circumstances. It allowed him access to the Praetorium Guard, the elite bodyguard to Caesar himself. They often had the ear of Caesar, and they exerted great influence upon him. Also, it gave him access to many of the servants from the palace who were there to minister to Paul's needs. Now, Paul would never have had that opportunity to be so close to the palace if he was just a street preacher or preaching in the synagogue or the amphitheater. But as a prisoner, Paul was just one step away from the emperor himself and was having a great influence upon the guards. And there was another important result from Paul's arrest 
It emboldened others to step up in his place in the city. In speaking about Paul's view of his own imprisonment, Dr. Gordon Fee, former professor of New Testament at Regent College, pointed out in his commentary, what, what is remarkable is how Paul reflects on this matter. Though he would surely prefer freedom himself to evangelize, he recognizes that God has used his curtailment to prod others. The rejoicing that ensues must be taken seriously. Here is one for whom the gospel is bigger than his personal role in making it known. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ was the one overarching goal in the life of Paul. If that was happening, it didn't matter what his circumstances were, what he was enduring. A while back, I had preached a few examples of of, uh, individuals that were facing very severe physical or emotional uh, trials and emerged victorious in life because they used those limitations as a platform to speak to thousands. Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed from the neck down. Nikki Vujicek, born without arms or legs. Dave Drabecki, who lost his pitching arm to cancer. They all stayed focused on Christ, and each has, has a powerful ministry to thousands of people despite the pain and limitations. And here's another example that I came across about Peter O'Brien. Now, you may not recognize the name Peter O'Brien, but if you're in seminary, you probably have read this, his commentaries. He's a renowned Bible scholar and author and former missionary. His account goes like this. When he was a youth, neither of his parents were Christians. But his mother became greatly impacted by the faithful witness of a neighbor. This neighbor was a simple lady with sincere faith in Christ who unfortunately lived with an incurable disease and suffered daily. But she never complained. Her attitude and witness made a tremendous impact upon O'Brien's mother, who eventually trusted Christ as Savior. Humanly speaking, it was because of this simple lady's faith that O'Brien's mother became a Christian. And because of that, O'Brien later believed. He would then go to seminary and get a Ph.D. Then he would go to India and make the gospel known for years. Then he would go to Australia, teach, and write several extraordinary commentaries. Now suppose you had said to this simple, suffering woman, here's the deal. If you glorify Christ in your suffering, then as a consequence, Indians will be converted. Pastors will be trained to teach the Bible and countless sermons will be preached. Will you now suffer faithfully every day? I'm sure she would have said yes. Of course. I can endure for these reasons. But she didn't know those things would happen. When we're in the middle of our suffering, we never know what will happen, but we must trust God is sovereign. And that he can and often does advance the gospel through great personal hardships, such as imprisonment and or cancer. Our job is to stay faithful, joyful, and Christ-centered through the suffering 
confidently trusting in his wise and sovereign will. In sharing the gospel so important to us, that is it so important to us that we would be willing to accept suffering and see it as a unique opportunity to advance the kingdom? Paul viewed his circumstances that way, would we? And we all often pray, oh Lord, use me as your instrument. What if he said, okay, I'll do that, but you're going to be paralyzed because I want you to reach people who are similarly paralyzed. Or I want you to know that you're going to lose your entire family in an accident so that you can minister better to the grieved. Would we? Paul did. Paul made the advancement of the gospel his number one priority. But he knew life on earth is short. Eternity is long. Paul writes that because he is in prison, others have stepped up to preach Christ more courageously and fearlessly. Now those words indicate that there's a risk involved in preaching Christ. We know that from the beginning, the Jews and and Judaizers opposed Paul, often violently. They opposed the message of Christ as the Messiah, so there was danger from them. But one of the issues facing Paul and Christianity, early Christianity, was the question, would Rome accept it as another legal religion? Judaism was accepted as a legal religion. But Christianity pulled away from the synagogue and driven away from the synagogue raised the question, would they be recognized as a legal expression as a religion? That was the ultimate question behind uh, Paul's arrest. Acts 28 ends with this imprisonment, uh, but evidence indicates that Paul was released only later uh, to be again arrested and executed under Emperor Nero. And then starting in verse 15, Paul addresses a, a kind of competition. It reads this way, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now Paul is describing two sets of preachers and their motives. And the one group uh, preaches Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition and not sincerely hoping to stir up trouble. This is, a, this is a strange group, indeed. First thing we should understand about this group, that this group is part of the larger group that he was just speaking about, that they were stepping up, speaking the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. This group was part of that. And secondly, we need to understand that the content of their message was true. 
the content of the message was true. Paul would never let false teaching go unchallenged. Remember how forcefully he wrote to the Galatians in the Galatians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8? Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. But we have none of that warning here. No challenge expressed here. What these preachers were preaching, their content was the gospel. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the problem was rested in their motivation for teaching and preaching. And sadly, the wrong type of competition can be found amongst preachers and even in churches. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul wrote, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. And sadly, we can find even envy and rivalry and selfish ambition in the pulpit just as easily as anywhere else. Sometimes it's just a a temptation. But sometimes it can take root in a preacher's heart or the heart of a congregation, especially in these days of the Internet. Now, with just a a click, you can bounce from church to church to church, pastor to pastor, to see how things are going over there. And you begin to form conclusions and uh, almost a competition. And if we're not careful, that can become fertile ground for the devil. I'm human. I hear the devil's whispers. Tries to plant the seeds of, of envy. I've seen those younger pastors with those enormous congregations. I'm thinking maybe I need to dress down, get those jeans with the holes in them, you know, and a <laughs> baseball cap to the side, you know. Is that going to do it? I hear that. I ask myself those questions. Why aren't we that big? Then maybe I get critical of them. Oh, yeah, but they're not preaching deeply. You know, the congregation is, is there for the music and entertainment. And that sort of negative comparison leads to an unhealthy spirit. Because I have taken my eyes off Jesus and his assignment to me here and you being planted here and the blessings we have received here and I'm looking somewhere else. And that's unhealthy. Then there's always the the temptation for some people to step into the spotlight. One thing to seek the advancement of the gospel for the cause of Christ, but it's another to use the gospel to advance one's own cause or one's own position. Sometimes you find pastors who are, who are, are building their own kingdom 
and closely guarding their own congregation from any outside Christian influences. You know, some pastors used to rail against Billy Graham. And they sought to dissuade their people from attending his rallies. And mostly that came from a fear that they would leave and go somewhere else. It was an attack. They took it as a personal attack on their own selfish ambitions. And apparently, these types were not uncommon circulating about the early church. Even Paul had to defend himself from such ungodly motives. We read this in 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our heart. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for the praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we can have asserted our authority. By the need to defend himself, we recognize that there are those who are out there with all those uh, ungodly motives. And some had even pointed the finger at Paul. And so he had to defend himself here as not seeking the praise of men, but of God. So pastors and congregants need to be alert to the temptation of unhealthy competition especially when there should be no competition at all. Some of the evangelists were preaching to promote themselves, maybe even critical of Paul for being in prison. However, others were motivated by love, recognizing God's hand and purpose in Paul's imprisonment. One of the biggest signs of spiritual maturity is to be able to applaud another's ministry and to encourage that ministry and to encourage those churches and see them as partners rather than as competition. The story is told of F.B. Meyer, a great Bible teacher and pastor who lived a century ago. He was pastoring a church, and he began to notice that the attendance was suffering. This continued until he finally asked some of the members of the congregation one Sunday morning why they, th- they thought the attendance was dwindling. They said this, a member volunteered, it's because of this new church down the road. The young preacher has everyone talking, and many are going to hear him speak. That young preacher was Charles Spurgeon. Meyer, rather than seeking to discourage this, exhorted his entire congregation to join him and go participate in seeing this move of God, as he called it, If this be happening, he said, then God must be at work. And Maya, even though he was an accomplished preacher and teacher, recognized that where God is at work, you need to join him at it. 
And this is something of the position that Paul takes right here. Not that Spurgeon ever had bad motives. But in verse 18 we read, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. And his response is almost shocking. But what does it matter? In effect, Paul willingly turns a blind eye to their motives because he sees that Christ is being preached. One commentator says, Paul's self-forgetfulness excites affectionate admiration. We love him all the more for having written this beautiful passage. Sensitive soul that he was, he does not begin to pity himself because certain jealous preachers were trying to win applause at his expense. What really matters to him is not what they are doing to him, but what they are doing for the gospel. And because that is the case, Paul could rejoice. The proclamation of Christ and the advancement of the gospel is his source of joy. Remember many years ago, I was over in, uh, in Levittown, we had a, a pastor come and uh, he was a, a new church planter and he wanted to plant a church in, in the area. And that's kind of like, you get that human side of you saying, oh, it's competition. And then these other th- side of you saying, glory be, we need more churches. And you begin to wrestle with that. But again, the spiritually mature, and fortunately, you know, we, we were able to help him get started. We don't have a monopoly on churches. Even during this time of of COVID restrictions and quarantine, we can likewise rejoice because the gospel is still being proclaimed, both in person here in the church as well as over the internet for those who are at home. And yes, the conditions are not ideal. We all recognize that. Social distancing, wearing these masks, staying at home. But let's rejoice in the fact that the gospel is still being preached. You're still hearing the word of God. In fact, the the views over the internet indicate that many more people are hearing the word of God while tuning into our services than ever before filled the auditorium. In that, we should rejoice. This COVID pandemic has not taken God by surprise. He has allowed it, and he will guide and lead his people, his church, through these difficult days. And rather than complain about the new reality of restrictions, which we're all frustrated with, let us adapt and and see and seek out new opportunities in having the gospel proclaimed and new avenues open to minister to the people who are in their homes and to one another. I know if you tuned in at the, uh, the Soundview Pregnancy Banquet the other night, the guest speaker, Reverend Jason McGuire, quoted Proverbs 24.10. 
If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? This is true of us today in our present situation. These may be troubling times, but the faithful remain strong, keeping their focus on Christ. Our competition in running the race of faith is against these hindrances that would slow our progress or lessen our commitment to serving others, our church and our Lord. That's why over and over again, the scriptures say to encourage one another, strengthen one another, spur one another on, remain strong. John Piper closes us out with this quote, Paul rejoices in the Lord always, even though he sits in prison, maligned by his enemies, hearing reports of sin and strife among his friends. His joy is not anchored in circumstances, but in his Savior, who will never disappoint him and who will surely deliver him. Therefore, Christian joy is the great pleasure and happiness that we feel. Whether or not the sun is shining, whether or not our team is winning, whether or not we are healthy or hurting, because our Redeemer lives, because we belong to him, and because he is making all things new. When we encounter even though challenges, we tend to complain and lose sight of our all-sufficient Savior. We respond like the Israelites who grumbled about food only days after the exodus. This letter calls us to rejoice in the Lord always by reframing the present challenges in light of the awesome day and the awesome work of Christ Jesus and rejoice in it. Take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances. Christ is preached. Even during COVID, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Hopefully, you will be rejoicing as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that we can continue to preach your word and that it goes out, Lord, not only here in this building, but now, Lord, on the internet to who knows how many. We praise you and we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you indeed would would bless it, for you promise that your word will not go forth without it accomplishing what you desire to accomplish. And, Lord, we trust that. And so we preach Christ. We preach your word. And, we, Lord, we pray that you would use it for your honor and for your glory. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.